is that the time? It must be another episode of the British Broadcasting Century then. Hello, I'm Paul Carenza, and as this episode is released, it's 100 years to the day since the first broadcast of the BBC Pip. Pips are such a staple of modern broadcasting. And when I say modern, I mean the last hundred years. This is the British Broadcasting Century, the podcast that brings you the origin story of radio, the BBC, life, technology, and everything to do with popular culture that really stems from those moments a hundred years ago to the day on this occasion. In our main timeline, we're still back in spring 1923. But I mean, for the pips, you've got to leap forward because it's all about timing, isn't it? After a wee little break, welcome to season six of the British Broadcasting Century. Oh, there they are. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. This is London calling. Pip, pip, hello, hello, it's Paul Carenza here. Welcome to the British Broadcasting Century podcast. We've had a, a minor interval, haven't we, between what I'm calling season five and season six of this podcast, but uh, we haven't fallen silent over on Patreon. So if you ever miss us between seasons or between episodes, over on Patreon, we've been having uh, various readings, recordings, videos, and the like. But right now, we celebrate and commemorate a century exactly to the day since this. Well, we better not do all six, because you might think it's on the hour, mightn't you? In fact, they're available every 15 minutes if a local radio station or national wants to use them. But, of course, most choose to do it either on the hour or not at all. But especially on Radio 4, if you hear the pips, you can set your clock by it. 5th of February, 1924, they debuted on the early BBC. So in this mini-sode, we're just going to reflect back. In our main timeline, we're actually still in spring of 1923, where we resume next time as we close Marconi House, we open Savoy Hill, and we transport you forwards from there. So we will get to the pips again when we naturally get to them in our chronology of things. But chronology, well, it's all about timing, isn't it? So if you can't celebrate the pips 100 years on, what can you do? But what BBC were the pips joining? Well, the start of 1924 was full of first firsts, and that's what we're all about here on this podcast. So 1st of January 1924, we had the shipping forecast for the first time. There's a marvellous podcast by Charlie Connolly that's all about that. We're hoping to lure him onto this podcast at some point. He doesn't know it yet, uh, to talk about the shipping forecast. Uh, He's written a marvellous book about it as well. So 1st of January, that came along. Uh, 5th of January, you had the first kind of official, proper, established religious service from a church on the BBC. To talk religion in the presence of any of you who are willing to listen. There was one a month or two earlier in Gaelic. If you want more information on that, see our most recent episode just before this one on the first religious broadcasts. 15th of January, you've got Danger by Richard Hughes. Yeah, we are, my dear. Buried alive. Often attributed as the world's first drama written for broadcast. Of course, we on this podcast no different, don't we? Phyllis Twigg's The Truth About Father Christmas was actually the first drama written for broadcast. More on how we're trying to elevate and amplify her name in ensuing episodes on this podcast. The other thing that happened, of course, in that month before the pips was a different time signal. Former BBC chief engineer Harold Bishop. Not that one. Round about that time, too, we started broadcasting Big Ben. Midnight, the last day of 1923. We had taken a microphone down to Westminster. We clambered with a clumsy instrument onto a house roof. 
We didn't first of all put a microphone in the tower itself. We put a microphone on the top of what I think is called St. Stephen's House in Bridge Street opposite Big Ben, pointed it towards Big Ben. Because we hadn't permission then to go inside. Our microphone picked up a good deal of traffic noise, but it got the midnight chime good and hearty. And so the year 1924 was heralded in a new way by Big Ben. But of course they weren't a very accurate time signal in those days. And in order to uh, satisfy the more scientifically minded, uh, a Mr. Hope Jones, who was concerned with, uh, who was a well-known horologist at that time, suggested that we should irradiate the pips from the Greenwich clock. Ah, yes, so Frank Hope Jones had been interested in clocks and electrical devices for many years beforehand. He'd founded the synchronome business in 1895, so lots of clocks and grandfather clocks and pendulums and electrical devices. But he was also really early fascinated by the opportunities of radio, long before the BBC. In 1913, Frank Hope Jones's company Synchronome started to make the Horophone. That's H-O-R-O phone, not Horophone as in, do you like scary movies? Frank Hope Jones also was the first chairman of the Wireless Society of London back in 1913. So this is the radio ham days, and this is before that's all paused for World War I. After that war, radio hams slowly get their licences back. But Frank Hope Jones is instrumental in making sure that happens. He's also instrumental in making sure that broadcasting happens. Because in 1921, that sort of gap year of broadcasting, when the government said, no, no broadcast experiments is too dangerous. Radio is just for military and police and uh, legitimate purposes. But Frank Hope Jones, he was the guy who got that petition together from the Wireless Society of London. The Wireless Society of London began to educate that it should have a station of its own. The Postmaster General was therefore presented with a petition by signed by a number of people that there should be a station specially devoted to transmissions to the amateurs of those days. At last it was announced that a wireless telephony programme would be permitted once a week. The station chosen was Rittle with a power of half a kilowatt. But it was really Frank Hope Jones and others like him rallying around getting that petition together to bring us broadcasting. So from there, official broadcasting gradually begins. 2MT Rittle then brings us to 2LO in London. You know the backstory, 2ZY in Manchester comes along, but the story of time signals start to come in there as well. While Peter Eckersley's going a bit wild and crazy on 2MT in Rittle, Arthur Burroughs in 2LO in London wants to use radio for proper purposes. He wants a time signal. And so, well, they can't do an outside broadcast to Big Ben... Arthur Burroughs brings the tubular bells into the studio. On the hour, he or Stanton Jeffries would chime the bells with the Westminster chimes. Peter Eckersley would then mock him by bashing scrap metal and broken bottles. Maybe not at the exact time. But really, the very first sound you heard on the actual BBC, 2LO London, 14th of November 1922, a day that we will be revisiting next episode, by the by. Yeah, the very first thing you heard. The Westminster Chimes, heralding in official broadcasting. And there's Manchester as well. They've got 2ZY, bless them, and they are doing broadcasting, almost rivalling the Marconi station down in London, even though they will become under that BBC banner. 
And in Manchester, they have a particular issue doing the time signals. They decide they want to let people know the exact time. Perhaps to the nearest 30 seconds it may have been. There from the start of Manchester to ZY. Reginald Jordan. In the very first days, there was quite a to-do about the time signal. We used to announce for a long time beforehand that uh, listeners should stand by in order to get the accurate time signal from Paris. In a room, I should think about 100 yards away from the studio, was uh, the the most complicated piece of apparatus known to man at that time, a six-valve set, which remained tuned direct to Paris. The announcer, after warning everybody to stand by, went through about half a dozen swing doors and up and down steps and so on to this room, uh, put on the headphones, and as soon as he heard the first pip of the six pips coming from Paris, threw off the phones, rushed back through all the doors, and by the time he got to the microphone, hit a gong as hard as he could, which might, of course, been somewhere near six o'clock. So, yeah, not an exact science. And here's another tale from 2ZY in Manchester. While Marconi House in London was still working out how to broadcast Big Ben, and it couldn't, you couldn't do an outside broadcast at that point, 2ZY in Manchester had a different idea. And they did broadcast Big Ben because Metropolitan Vickers, who ran the Manchester radio station, they also had an office in Westminster. So just before the hour, one staff member put a phone call through from Westminster to the Manchester studio, held the telephone microphone out of the window to hear Big Ben, and sure enough, listeners in the Manchester area could, for the first time, hear Big Ben's chimes before London could. In those days, we didn't know there was going to be a unified BBC. We, in the north, felt ourselves in competition with Marconi in the south. It was the most accurate time signal of early British broadcasting, and Manchester heard Big Ben first. The kind of things that uh, other people adopted, if I may say so, after us. So then we go forward to April 1923, where we are in our main timeline on this podcast. The early BBC, very fond of having talks by learned people on the air. Here is Mr F. Hope Jones, our time expert. I give you the exact time signal at the hour. Frank Hope Jones, this horologist, and this fascination with both radio and the time, he gives a talk on London to a low. I shall do it by counting out the last five seconds of the hour. In that talk, he suggests... <coughs> Stand by. Are you ready? ...that we get a proper time signal. The last five seconds of the hour, and the last one will be the exact hour. Pip, 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 pip. Harold Bishop. I remember going down with Mr Hope Jones to see the Astronomer Royal, Sir Frank Dyson, to make an arrangement for the pips of the Greenwich clock to be radiated and from that has developed the Greenwich Pips, which we know so well today. From the Huddersfield Examiner, the 5th of February 1924. The time signals distributed by the British Broadcasting Company at 3.30 and 9.30 will be transmitted direct from Greenwich Observatory. The last four seconds of the preceding minute will be heard as clicks when the signal is about to be given representing the 56th, 57th, 58th, 59th seconds and the final click, which will be a little louder than the others. And from the Sheffield Daily Telegraph. You will get its heartbeats from its escape wheel, which is permitted to touch a spring with six successive teeth, thereby making electrical contact, which transmits a current direct to the 2 aerial. And so it was brought to us on the 5th of February 1924, on the hour... Not quite. It was on the half hour. 9.30 in the evening was, in fact, when they first did the time signals. It's an odd choice. 
I don't know when you last heard the pips on the quarter hour. Occasionally you might hear them on the half hour on the Radio 2 Breakfast Show or Radio 1 if they're being a little bit ironic, perhaps. Kids and their music. So while Frank Hope Jones had the idea for this time signal, Frank Dyson came up with the specific details. For those very first time signals, there were two clocks, actually, just to make sure that it really worked. And the sound was made with a one kilohertz oscillator. Just send down the phone line. The BBC actually got them for free to begin with. It was 1937 when the Admiralty finally actually asked for a little bit of payment towards the running of this. This is London. The Pips had a few other homes then. It went from Greenwich to Abinger in Surrey, quite near me actually, in 1939 uh, for the war. And in 1957 it went to the rather French-sounding Hurstman Zoo in Sussex. To begin with though, it was six Pips of equal length. The last one was only extended in 1971. Part of the thinking behind this was that if you tuned in late, you wouldn't know which was the last pip. So if you hear that long pip, you know that's the one. The pips are over. The time has been set. Of course, around that time, the pips were having a very successful career as the backing group to Gladys Knight. And then in 1990, the BBC took custody of the pips full-time. They installed a new machine in Broadcasting House, and there was a, a little ceremony when Greenwich essentially handed over the pips. I like to think on a nice velvet cushion. Ooh, dropped a pip on the floor. There we go. And, of course, perhaps the most famous pips crasher was Terry Wogan on his Radio 2 breakfast show, when people would tune in to hear the crash, or not, of said pips. And today they're generated from a backroom of Broadcasting House somewhere, from essentially a small box. All highly technical, you know. So thank you, Frank Hope Jones, for the idea in the first place. Thank you to the Astronomer Royal Frank Dyson for running with it. And thank you to all of the newscasters and presenters and announcers who, over the years, have talked around, or maybe occasionally crashed, the pips. As someone who's broadcast on local radio, I can 100% tell you I definitely have crashed the pips. But you know what? They healed up, they recovered, and an hour later, they were good to go again. So anyway, happy 100th to the pips. Here's to the next 100 years. I don't know what radio will sound like in a hundred years from now, but if nothing else, surely we'll still have the pips. So next time on the British Broadcasting Century podcast, it's the end of April 1923, and we say goodbye to Marconi House as we open Savoy Hill Studio. The next two or three episodes I've got all lined up. They're going to be marvellous, and you will hear Marconi House and Savoy Hill celebrated like never before. If you'd like to support the British Broadcasting Century podcast, you can join us on Patreon, £5 a month, patreon.com slash paulcarenza, where you'll find at least once a month I'm doing videos, readings. Recently we've had radio pioneer William Lucu with one of his short stories and reflections from Cecil Lewis's Broadcasting from Within, the first book on broadcasting. We're sort of reading that and interrupting as we go to elucidate, illustrate and generally heckle it. Oh, equally, you can find me on tour, paulcarenza.com slash tour. Coming up, Leicester, Totnes, Guildford and Bedford. I've just had a lovely run of gigs in Dorset. Thank you if you came to those. And if you like the show at your place, it's a 90-minute long show that explores the origin story of the BBC. A bit like this podcast, except with tea and coffee in the interval. I mean, you can have tea and coffee listening to this podcast, but you've got to buy your own. In fact, you've got to buy your own at the gig. So, you know, either way. Basically, it's there if you want. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is by Will Farmer. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and we are not made in any way in conjunction with the BBC, don't you know? We're talking about the old British Broadcasting Company, and not this modern corporation thing. Archive clips, generally speaking, are out of copyright given they're over 50 years old. If any copyright is infringed, well, we can only humbly apologise, and we will remove any offending items.
As for the pips, well, they're very old indeed, of course, and they've been marking that time for a hundred years. Stay informed, educated, and entertained, and subscribed, and tell your friends, why not? This is a solo-run podcast, so we need all the publicity help we can get. So we thank you for that, and uh, do join us next time, because the pips have announced it's time for Season 6 of the British Broadcasting Century.